You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents A Community Affair, a weekly program where we discuss with national and local newsmakers important issues that impact our community. And now, here's your host, Riley Adams. Welcome to A Community Affair here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. I'm your host and Assistant News Director, Riley Adams. On Monday, January 15th, Rowan University hosted its 38th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship Breakfast and Day of Service. This year's speaker was Charles Blow, a New York Times colonist, an MSNBC political analyst and author who covers topics such as racial inequality, social justice, and LGBTQ issues. Following the conclusion of the event, I had the pleasure of speaking with him. So you have a career in journalism. You're a columnist at the New York Times, and you're also a political analyst with MSNBC. What drove you into that career path? Oh, this is a long story. <laughs> I don't even know if you have enough time for this. So in high school, I had met the governor of Louisiana, visited, I'm from Louisiana, mm-hmm. and visited the state capitol. And it was the craziest thing. Louisiana politics are insane. And so they were talking, taking us to the state capitol. And you're like, oh, this is where this person got shot at. That's the bullet hole. And then it was talking all about this crazy stuff. And then... They took us to the governor's mansion, and we were in this receiving room. And Governor Edwin Edwards strolls in, and he's all this bravado. And I just thought, I want to be that guy. I want to be the governor of Louisiana. So I started, that was what I thought in high school. So I went to college. I majored in English and journalism, hoping to go to law school. English professor convinced me to major in journalism instead of English. He said, I have a profession if I didn't go to law school it made sense to me I was 18 years old and I end up with this degree in journalism Mm. not because I wanted to so and and I end up choosing visual communications and to anyone who's listening who's a student this is not an honorable thing that I did but I thought like this is the easiest way for me to keep my scholarship and go to all the parties so I majored in visual communication so I graduate with this and then I realized like what am I going to do and I, but I realized that I have a skill set that not a lot of people have I understand data visual and visualization because I've learned it but I'm also a writer and a person who's uh, intimately interested in, in um, journalism so I get a lot of job offers to become what they called in graphic artist which was a person who did data um, journalism for newspapers and I did that for years and years and years I left to become the art director of National Geographic magazine and the times wanted me to come back and I wind up doing this thing that we started we thought of as visual journalism journalist which was to do maps charts diagrams for the editorial page and kind of introduce them it migrated into a full-blown column that didn't have any maps charts diagrams at all so it's kind of a circuitous fluky way that I get into doing this. It is not something that I set out to do or ever aspired to do. And in your career, you cover heavy topics such as racial equality, social justice, and LGBTQ issues. What made you want to highlight those and bring awareness to that? I think the best 
writing is the writing you do because it is closest to your heart and it is also part of the lived experience. And so all those things are things that I know about because they are part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I write what I know and that those things end up being the things that I know. And with your career at New York Times, you kind of built a platform. How has your platform helped bring more attention to these topics when they are needed to have eyes on? You know, it's it's interesting because I don't think about necessarily how many eyes get on uh, are on something. I don't know how many people read a column. Mm-hmm. Never have known that. I know things that I get a lot of response to, things that I don't. I, I know things that get passed around a lot. I know things that rise to the tops of the New York Times trending topics and occasionally to, you know, uh, social media trending topics. But I don't think you can write for that. I think that the moment that you start trying to appeal to mass market readership and writing with the intention of gaining the most readership, you lose yourself. That it is no longer genuinely you, that you are now slave to clicks and and views. I think that you always have to stay positioned in a space of genuineness. And sometimes you know full well that no one will read it or that the people who normally read you will hate that you have written this. But if you are true to yourself, no one can agree with you all the time. And you have to accept that. If one of the other columnists once told me early on about a person we had just writing um, uh, on contract that was only going to be for a year, but he said, that person will never make it. They won't be good at this. And I said, why? And he says, because he wants everybody to like him. You can never be that person. Today you joined Rowan University in their Martin Luther King Jr. breakfast service and day of service. What made you want to take part in that and honor Dr. King's legacy? I always want to talk about MLK. I, 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 I'm a, I've been a huge fan since I was a child and not because of the way that other people think about it. I just thought of him as a person whose background was very close to mine. He was a Southerner. He was very smart, incredibly articulate, interested in leadership from a very young age, even before we know him as Martin Luther King. And all of that resonated with me as a kid. So I, I mean, I, I had posters of him on my wall, had t-shirts, literally t-shirts of Martin Luther King as a kid. And so I saw myself in him. So I'm always have tried to learn as much as possible and continue to learn as much as possible about him. And I'm always interested in having conversations around him and his legacy and to share what I have learned about him. 50 years after his death, why do you think it's important to continue to honor his legacy through each generation that comes through? Well, first, there is the historical piece, which is that you should know your history. Mm-hmm. And the history of MLK is American history. So everyone should just know it, just not because you're black or whatever, or interested in social justice. Just that this is American history, and this is a he was a pivotal figure in American history. The second is that there's so much beyond the I Have a Dream speech that is informative about his life and also how people interact with people who agitate for change that you can just learn a lot because he goes through so many iterations. One, you know, 
There's a period when he's celebrated. There's a period when he is spurned. There's a period when the black community rallies around him. There's a period at which they feel, younger generation feels like he's out of touch with what they want and need. All of these are are perpetual issues and you can just learn a lot about how people navigate through different phases of popularity or being pushed or shunned. And that's just informative. As you mentioned a little bit before, what made you exactly want to participate in Rowan's day of service? First of all, I was invited. So I was I accepted the invite. I love, as I said before, I love talking about MLK. I love kind of a Q&A format mm-hmm. because it's just, it's real. Um, I, you know, I do um, keynote speeches, but you can never know precisely what the crowd is interested in. Mm-hmm. But when you when someone's asking questions, you get it immediately. You, yeah. you, they direct the conversation, not you. Um, and and they can turn on a dime and respond to something you said in the last question and change from whatever their script they had. And so it just becomes an organic, very interesting thing. I love that. I love that when it is when any speech that I am giving includes young people mm-hmm. because I not only am I interested in how young people process the world, I have children who are young adults. Um, and all of that makes it fascinating when any group invites me, uh, particularly a school, particularly one who will have students be integral to the process. And how do you think Rowan holding an event like this helps? How does it help college students really understand the history of MLK and what he's done? Well, first you just get exposure. You you get to hear it. You get to, um, even if you've read something or read whole books, um, I find, I'm 53 years old, I'm still learning about everything in the world, including Dr. King. I think you can, there's always someone with a different perspective or can contextualize the same facts you've already read in a different way. And I think that that's always helpful and it expands you as a learner. And learning is not just something you do in school. It's a lifetime endeavor. And this Things like this just expand your concepts. And have you done anything like this at other colleges or universities, whether it be for MLK or something related to the topic? Oh, yes. I I generally speak about MLK at least once a year. And, and I love that idea. Yeah. You kind of touched on this during your keynote speech, but what should the younger generation do to help the positive growth of our livelihood? in our country, the world around us? Well, one thing is to make sure that you are the best citizen that you can be, meaning that you are knowledgeable of what's happening around you. Look for ways to make society more equitable. And the way you do that is examine all of the systems and structures around you. Very often, they're just, they're embedded in, inequity is embedded in everything. You just have to be willing to examine it and then figure out if there's some way you can impact it for the better. Um, voting is part of that. Um, it is not a end all be all, uh, doesn't change everything. Different levels of government impact people's lives differently. You kind of have to participate in all of them thinking that you can 
uh, vote for a president and that person's supposed to change it. That doesn't, that's not how American democracy works. Half of the power in America is, is the reason it's called the United States. Half the power is reserved for the states. In fact, the, the framers of the constitution wanted most of the power to be in the states and the lesser half to be in the federal government. Uh, and, and then there's the, the, local level of government where you can have tremendous impact and that's everything from local DAs and school board members and uh, council uh, council members and all of that is important to making sure that people like you and your community have a voice that the underserved, underprivileged, underrepresented get more representation. All of that has to be part of what how you think about power and the structures that you live in and your ability to impact those for in, uh, to make them better. From your personal perspective, do you have any goals or expectations that you'd like to see over maybe like the next five, 10 years to help our community when it comes to like racial injustice, social justice, LGBTQ issues, anything that you'd like to see positively change? Not to take this in too political a turn, but uh, first I want as least damage to be done as possible. So, the upcoming election means a lot to me. And that's not because, as I always say, I care about either one of these two old guys. It's really because I want to do as little damage so that uh, even if we're not in a moment of progress, that we're not in a moment of regression. Mm-hmm. And that when a chance comes for more progress, that we are at least starting from this point and not from a point where we've been pushed back down the field 50 yards. So that's the first step. And that involves, you know, whatever the next administration is on the presidential level, there's a lot of, this. judges matter so much. And these are not just Supreme Court justices who are consequential, but there's all these federal judges, judgeships that matter. And a lot of cases never, ever, ever make it to the Supreme Court. Something happens in your local jurisdiction, you sue, it is appealed to the state uh, courts, and then they appeal it to, to the district courts. That's as high as it goes. So whoever's in those district court seats, that matters to me because the things that a lot of people who I know would be litigating are issues of equality and justice and if those things are not going to even make it all the way up to the top all those other judges have to be people who would be fair and so i look at all of that all of the local representation i look at all the state houses and all that all of that so important because there's so much you can do on the ground protesting and gathering names and signing petitions but then it runs up into it against a political and legal structure and i need that structure to treat those efforts and those intentions well and do you have any advice to give to younger generations who want to work harder to make that change they probably know more than me about what to do but i would just say stay engaged that even when your issues are not in favor. If you believe in the issue, you have to stay engaged. You have to fight when nobody's fighting with you so that when the tide turns in your favor, you have the infrastructure to be ready to go on day one. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Mr. Blow. 
When we return, we will look back at some former guests and see what they had to say during their speeches. Welcome back to A Community Affair here on Roan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. I'm your host, Riley Adams, and the first speaker we will hear from is former Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young. Thank you very much. That enabled me to say a whole lot and maybe give some credibility to some of the things that I might say that uh, might seem a little controversial. I don't want to be controversial, but um, in a world where everybody is sort of inclined to say not in my backyard, and when we're looking inward more than outward, I think the fact that I have uh, been around the world and I have seen so much, and I've been privileged to have the power to do something about the things that I've seen, that I see the world in uh, a little different way. But I see it through the same kinds of eyes that Martin Luther King saw it, I think. And that's what I want to share with you, a vision of America. A vision of America 2011. A better, a vision for America. When I realized I was coming to the Philadelphia area, I began to reminisce on uh, my little uh, knowledge of history. I really was not much of a historian. I was a biology major, as was your president. Uh, <laughs> and yet, uh, I have found more and more that as I've tried to understand this great country, it helps to go back to the beginning. And one of the things we saw in the beginning was that Thomas Jefferson, a very strong democratic personality uh, who believed in democracy, um, and Alexander Hamilton, a man who was born of unknown heritage, who got his start serving as a shopkeeper as a six and seven year old who developed a knowledge of economics from being in the West Indies and having to run a store for an elderly gentleman who was sick after his mother died. And he and his little brother were experts in matters of business and trade before he came to Columbia University, then King's College, at the age of about 14. And uh, he was already very knowledgeable about tariffs and trade and uh, had a global economic view, which was a direct clash with Thomas Jefferson. In fact, Thomas Jefferson thought that he was a flunky and even a traitor for the British because he was interested in money and economics and banking. And he said America had to have a solid financial footing 
if we were going to make it as a nation. Jefferson, who was largely influenced by the French Revolution and French philosophy, was very suspicious of wealth, and they hated each other. And they said some of the nastiest things about each other that anybody has ever heard. And many of them were true. <laughs> but it was Benjamin Franklin, Philadelphian, who was an elder, sort of provided the reason and the practical experience of pulling them together and maybe making possible our Constitution. The reason I tell you this is because I'm in Philadelphia or the Philadelphia area and because the tensions that were in that Continental Congress are still in the Congress today. And looking back, we know that even though they hated each other and even though they talked about each other like I don't know what, both Jefferson and Hamilton were right. And the country could not have existed without both of their points of view. Next, we'll hear from the VIEW co-host, Sonny Hostin. Well, you know, I'm really um, humbled and honored to have been invited, especially on uh, MLK Day. I, I, like so many, have uh, studied his writings and his speeches and stand on his shoulders. I have the honor of knowing his daughter, Dr. Bernice King. Uh, I've uh, interviewed her, and um, she certainly carries on his work. And I've studied her work as well. And I think that his legacy is one of uh, black excellence, um, of faith, of speaking truth to power, uh, certainly of civil rights, right? Um, and I think we're in a unique time in our country where that legacy is uh, uniquely and particularly important. Um, he taught us so much about how to not be gaslit, I guess, by um, some of the things that we're hearing uh, in our society about our condition, um, about uh, our status in this democracy, about where our democracy is. I think he taught us about hope. Um, and what was really interesting to me in looking over his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, which I really would implore people to really look at uh, now more than ever. Um, he wrote that in 1963, um, and I, I, I decided to read it again uh, in preparation for MLK Day. Um, and he had been called an outsider, right, um, and an agitator, because he wasn't from Birmingham. Um, and they said he was causing trouble. And he was being told, even by other pastors and other leaders, that uh, civil rights and police brutality uh, really should be uh, litigated and fought in courts. Um, and, and he said, well, no, um, it's a responsibility, um, not only as a black man, not only as a leader, not only as a pastor, but really as a citizen um, to speak truth to power, right? Um, because, and I, I think in, in the letter, one of the, the 
takeaways that most people talk about is this injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But what he was saying was that we are interconnected in a way, that we are caught in this network of mutuality and that we're tied, uh, he wrote, in a single garment of destiny. And so whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And I think that's what we're seeing today in our country. We saw it with George Floyd. It was just this one thing in one place. We saw the murder of this man and it interconnected everyone, not only across the United States, but all across the world. Uh, we saw this siege in the Capitol, right? We, we, we saw it, all of us. And I think it just connected all of us, the injustice of that. Um, and that injustice became a threat to justice everywhere. And so I think what he wrote in 1963 informs us today. And so the invitation for me to be speaking uh, on a day celebrating him um, is particularly um, humbling. What challenges do you see that youth will face regarding race, especially uh, today with mm -hmm. the new political climate? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I was born in 1968 um, into a, an interracial marriage. Um, and 1967 was the loving case. Um, so, you know, my parents uh, just a year earlier wouldn't have even have been allowed to be married. And so I grew up always very aware of race uh, because I was sort of this unicorn. I was very unique. Um, I'm not so unique now. I think there are a lot of interracial marriages, certainly. Uh, a lot of more people that look like me. Um, but then that wasn't the case. And think about it, talking about MLK Jr., you know, the, the, the year I was born, he was assassinated, uh, a political assassination. Um, JFK assassinated the same year I was born. You know, that was the country that I was born into. Um, and so I always hoped that uh, things would get much better um, and that uh, race wouldn't be so centered in this country. But uh, after what happened on January 6th in this country, um, it just seems to me that we have so much work to do. American politics seem to be yet again, and maybe still, centered on race. Um, and that, uh, in many respects, we haven't progressed as much as many thought we had. And that saddens me, actually. I think that we have this incredible opportunity now with a new administration coming forward in less than a week, a black woman, a Southeast Asian woman, for the first time in our history uh, in the White House. Um, but you juxtapose that against um, 74 million Americans um, uh, that perhaps support a different agenda for the country and uh, juxtaposed against the dismembering of the Voting Rights Act and police brutality at an all-time high uh, and the racial reckoning that we're seeing in our country um, and economic crises, a global pandemic and a pandemic in this country that disproportionately affects black and brown people 
I am very concerned uh, about the state of race um, in America right now. That does it for this month's special edition of A Community Affair here on Roan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. I'm your host, Riley Adams, and I thank you all for tuning in. You've been listening to A Community Affair with your host, Riley Adams. Be sure to join us on the third Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. as we discuss the important issues that impact you and our community. Only here on Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM.